I love what you're saying. Speaking of really loud, Ted, <laughs> yeah. uh, the sound check is complete. You sound great. Your voice is nice and loud. We're communicating. Uh, we're recording. So we're ready to actually start the podcast. Splendid. Um, Beautiful. Whenever you two are. So, okay. So we finally arrived. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's nice to finally arrive because you don't even know you have, yes, you know, it, and then it just happens. Exactly. <laughs> Awesome. Well, Ted Dobson, it is my pleasure to invite you to the High Fidelity Podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. Sorry, Bridget. Uh, oh, I, did you I lied. miss that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I obviously was not in the room yet. <laughs> I had not arrived. <laughs> Welcome, Bridget. <laughs> there was somebody just like you before. It's cool to have you. <laughs> Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Conry, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. In today's episode, we speak with Ted Dobson, an organic farmer based in the Berkshires and a pioneer in the farm-to-table movement. Ted is also a legacy cannabis grower and was the first farmer to procure a license in partnership with Theory Wellness to grow cannabis outdoors in Massachusetts. Now that his contract with Theory has ended, he is reclaiming his farm and moving forward as the sole proprietor of Arrow Cultivate. Tune in to learn Ted's take on how a taste of place is equally important for cannabis as it is for food. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Today, we are delighted to share our conversation with Ted Dobson, 40-year veteran in the farm-to-table movement and legacy-turned-licensed cannabis cultivator in the beautiful Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. I've known Ted now for about 15 years. I grew up in the Berkshires and also have a long history in the food industry, working with restaurants and organizations that focus on creating access to and designing menus around locally grown food. We first crossed paths at Haven Cafe and Bakery, a business I co-founded with Chef Shelley Williams in Lenox. Ted's mescaline made its way onto almost every plate that left the kitchen. His twice-weekly backdoor deliveries often led to entertaining conversations, and a friendship grew out of our combined passions for bioregional systems of food and plant-based medicines. Our discussions turned to cannabis as Vermont and Massachusetts were positioning themselves for the legalization of medical cannabis programs in the early 2010s. Vermont came first in 2012, and I eventually moved up to Burlington full-time to begin my career in cannabis at Champlain Valley Dispensary. Ted had to wait another seven years to enter the Massachusetts market because outdoor cultivation was restricted there until 2019. His advocacy at the state and local levels of government is what pushed open the doors for farmers to enter the space. Few have passed through the door since, however. According to the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission website, outdoor licenses currently account for less than 25% of the total number of cultivation licenses. This is in stark contrast to the Vermont model, 
which prioritize small farms and outdoor grows. According to data shared in this week's Vermont Cannabis Control Board meeting, a total of 468,000 square feet of outdoor canopy has been licensed here, compared to 140,000 square feet of indoor. In the conversation that follows, Ted describes some of the challenges that outdoor growers face in Massachusetts, including the high cost of regulation, price compression, and maybe most importantly, convincing the consumer of the benefits and pleasures of sun-grown flour. Just a heads up, we had some technical difficulties connecting with Ted remotely on his farm. It made for a bumpy ride at times and an unconventional start, but we managed to come in for a soft landing. So without further ado, we present Ted Dobson of Arrow Cultivate. <laughs> Great. Ted, would you like to welcome me to the show? <laughs> Bridget, it's a delight oh, to have you on your show today, <laughs> and I'll be joining you, and I'm really excited about perhaps us getting on with the show. Um, it's a yeah. pleasure to be here with you, somebody that you know I've considered a friend for quite some time now, and we are, you know, we're two people I think who we actually haven't known each other that long, but it feels like we have, and we've kind of gone through a rather rich <laughs> ride or journey separately on different paths in the cannabis space in the last ten years, and obviously years goes back further, and we're going to talk about that, but. I think we actually first met about 15 years ago at the cafe that you were then working, Haven, in, in Lenox. Yes, yeah. Yeah, we met at Haven because you were the guy that we got all of our lettuce from. <laughs> and I'm not talking the devil's lettuce. <laughs> I'm talking about baby lettuce. You know, and it's um, remarkable <laughs> that, that that now feels like a long time ago. <laughs> You know, four years yeah. in cannabis yes. uh, has been such a tumultuous change in my life that that life of decades, 30 plus years of, of growing baby lettuce and lettuce mixes, mescaloon, was seven days a week for decades. And, and it suddenly feels like it's, it's just gone, you know, because, for instance, yeah. it wasn't unusual to deliver to 20 plus restaurants five, six days a week. And so my phone was constantly ringing. I was constantly on the hook for the order that needed to be filled. So all that running around, I think I've been decompressing from, but then, you know, getting into cannabis was not only an abrupt change, but became totally consuming. Yes. We always like to say that one cannabis year is like, it's like dog years. It's like sick. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So when we met, I mean, I was running the restaurant and, and literally I think every plate that went out the, the kitchen door had your greens on it. Definitely the lunch and dinner items, but even the breakfast items, any savory, any savory yeah. breakfast had your greens. We were like, yeah, salad, mm. it's good for breakfast. For sure. <laughs> Just ask my kids. Yeah. <laughs> they grew up on it, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, towards the end of my time there, I was transitioning into the cannabis business up here in Vermont. And I maintained my full-time job down there. And it was just kind of a difficult time and it was a difficult decision to make. But I reconnected with a friend of mine up here who was opening the first medical cannabis dispensary uh, or applying to be. And he welcomed me into the process just because of my background. And, you know, I made a decision to kind of take a risk to enter that industry. And that was, you know, what, 2012. So yeah. 10 years ago when it wasn't legal in Massachusetts yet. Vermont legalized medical before mass. And so 
That's when we started talking about cannabis because I was uh, working full time at the restaurant but starting to transition up here. And that's when I learned that you had a connection to cannabis uh, and you were very keen on trying to move that discussion along in Massachusetts so that you could enter the legal market. So why don't we kind of go back? Like, I really love your farming story. You know, you've been doing it practically all of your adult life. Your approach to farming and how cannabis um, was woven into that and, and why. Yeah, uh, well, I went to school at the University of Santa Cruz. I attended the uh, Farm and Garden Project that was initiated by an English horticulturist, Alan Chadwick, who had actually, as a young man, been an, an apprentice to Rudolf Steiner. So I was seeped in that biodynamic and organic ethos from that time. And my apprenticeship deeply impacted and influenced my my values towards the earth, seeing it it is is for what it is, alive and full of life everywhere, and how to how one cultivates whatever they're growing. This deep reverence for the soil was sort of imbued in me in my late teens, early twenties, and I also while being part of that program, met some various cannabis growers and vegetable growers out in the hills around Santa Cruz. And I was just immediately taken by the personality, the character of the plant and how well these plants were trees. You know, they were just stunning. Yeah. You know, and and the botany in and around Santa Cruz, California in general, is so extraordinary. So you're, you're essentially in kind of overload. And the marijuana plants just love that atmosphere and that climate and that topology. So I became very interested in in growing cannabis in Santa Cruz. And I had a a few plants outside the farm, uh, actually on the campus, uh, in way deep in the woods. (laughs) I'm sure you weren't alone in that. (laughs) First time I've ever told that story. But as a result of of cultivating cannabis out west for just a, a couple of seasons, I had enough seed as a result of doing a bit of breeding to bring back yeast. So after I completed the farm and garden project program, I got married and Anne and I came to Hillsdale, New York, where my family had had a home, a kind of second home. We'd come up in the winters and ski at Catamount, the local mountain between uh, Berkshire and Columbia County, New York. And uh, yeah, we built a house. We were very set on being homesteaders until we got our first tax bill, which was several thousand dollars. And I, I quickly realized that the growing our food was, was pretty special, but it was not going to pay the electrical bill, the tax bills, and, and, and all the materials we needed, by the way, to build our house at the time. So I quickly shifted into this mindset of Maybe I can sell these vegetables. And, you know, that time in the Berkshires and the Hudson River Valley was quite quiet. There weren't, there weren't all the restaurants that, that we now have. There were, there were a handful of restaurants throughout the county. And when was this exactly? Like the early 80s? This was like 1983, 84. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it, 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 those restaurants were buying commodity 
produce from California, Arizona, what have you, from distributors. So the farmer coming to the back door was a was a brand new thing. Right. And it was very fortunate that the, the produce, the vegetables that I had at that time were were gorgeous. And you know, I don't. My entree was was lettuces because I. It was a it was a quick learning process to, as to what restaurants would actually use, given the kind of conservative culinary mode they were in. I realized that everybody ate salad, so um, right. you know, I would I, my lead in was was baby lettuces, and um, although organic wasn't really understood in those years a beautiful fresh head of lettuce that had just been harvested became quickly attractive to chefs. And the fact that I was able to follow through and come back again with the next order, um, I built my credibility and, um, and through the eighties built a business with restaurateurs and, and food stores such as the Berkshire Co-op and Guido's that became eventually a kind of cohesive local market but, you know, while I was doing all this, it was very hard to secure capital, to borrow money from a bank. And I needed equipment. Yeah, I was surprised to hear that. You know, you shared that with me in your bio. And I, the thought that a bank wouldn't lend money to a small organic farmer, it just seems totally anathema in this day and age. But again, right. it's the early yeah. 80s and you were ahead of the curve there. <laughs> Yeah, they, I, I probably didn't look the part either, like um, a wild man, with very, very long hair and a beard. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I think that I, the way I presented myself to bankers might might have put them off uh, to even think, think if, if this guy represents organic farming, which we've never heard of, this isn't somebody that is a sure bet. Right. And and it was it was an unpleasant enough experience once or twice where I realized I was going to have to find another way to make money or to yes. uh, earn money. And it occurred to me, well, you know, I got a little prompting from chefs as well at the time, because some of them would ask me, is there anything else you grow? And uh, hmm. I knew what they were talking about. So I, I you know, I broke out that seed that I brought from Santa Cruz and I began to grow up in the mountains above our home, or really the backyard of our home. And um, within a few years, I, I had a strain that became quite popular with chefs. And I was actually producing enough at that time to sell here and there beyond chefs, particularly in Manhattan. And um, yeah, I was able to make enough money to buy a tractor and, and other farm equipment. You know, each season, I would save a bit more and Finance myself and, uh, you know, was able to buy what was necessary to, to go the next stage in my farming career at that time. So what were the first, uh, if you don't mind sharing, I'm just curious, the first genetics that you started to grow? You mentioned that you've had one in particular that became popular. And are those genetics, are you still connected to them or have you since shifted? Yes, it's the, the strain that I came back with from California was what they call OG now it was definitely an Afghanistan Afghanistan based strain that did very very well in California a very dense indica plant that had been grown i think throughout the northwestern coast northern california coast for for quite a long time and it did fabulously well but because of the density of the flower its indica heritage 
it, t- it tended to mold as right. it was ready to harvest. So it wasn't unusual for me to, to lose, you know, a quarter of my crop to, to mold between right. harvest and, you know, and drying. And I had a, an excellent area in our octagonal home above that was sort of built like a barn. So I had great ven- ventilation in the, the upper area of the house to dry. So everything was, was very well dialed in with fans and spacing and hanging. But the, yeah, the mold became a real issue that made me quite thoughtful and I realized I, I needed to breed to the conditions that, that I found myself here in the East Coast with, with wet, humid autumns. And yep. it was around that time that I, I met a guy at a local supermarket in Hillsdale who looked an awful like, like me, <laughs> long hair, bearded, and we met, immediately gravitated to each other. And with minutes, within minutes, we were talking about marijuana. And it turned out that he was a longtime grower from Connecticut. He was doing some house sitting for his sister in Hillsdale uh, at that time. And he, um, he and I went out to the parking lot and he showed me what he'd been growing for years and developing. And I realized that it was a sativa strain. And I, I asked him where, where that strain originally came from. And he told me Oaxaca, Mexico. And uh, we crossed, we wound up the following season breeding together and that cross of that Oaxacan sativa with the California indica once stabilized became just a beautifully resilient healthy plant and it had the best of both worlds you know it was that classic indica stony feeling in your body and that that uplifting inspirational sativa high and um, it became somewhat renowned in the city. It was quite popular. And it was at a time where, you know, perhaps finding good quality East Coast bud or North, Northeastern grown bud was not as readily available. There weren't a lot of regional growers, at least as far as I knew, uh, that were selling to the same folks I was in the city. So it was kind of unique. It was a unique moment with something pretty special. Yeah. And you were growing it what, biodynamically and organically as well, yeah. as I imagine. It, and it, it had all well. that integrity, for sure. And yes. it, was, it was a real taste of place. There's no question about it. I think that was part of what was so appreciated is that, that it wasn't from California. It wasn't from somewhere else. It was from this area. And it had that beautiful essence of cannabis grown organically outdoors I mean, it, it truly was an expression of the terroir of Hillsdale. And that was, awesome. that was certainly recognized. And, and it went along with, you know, the new burgeoning local food movement. People were really thinking about how things were grown, where they were grown. So that just became part of the mix. You know, the unfortunate part of it is it was illegal. So, you know, right. transporting yeah. it from Hillsdale to, to the city was a very fraught experience. And when I think about those days, I, I, I sometimes still recoil in fear because, you know, one was looking at doing um, real jail time um, for yeah. p- pounds of marijuana at that point in time. Yes. A big risk that you took, 100 percent. 
Unfortunately, it did come to an end, and, and that leads me into why I stopped around 1990. Oh. There was a tip to a police department that then called another police department, that being the Hillsdale Police Department, and they, uh, they came to the farm several days before my entire crop had been stolen. And what they found were a lot of leaves and stems. And to make a long, arduous legal story short, uh, it was very fortunate that what was found was, was, was stems and leaves. And it was probably very fortunate that, that somebody had stolen the crop. But that really shook me up. Um, I had two yes. children. My wife and I had separated that same year. So it was a very difficult year emotionally anyway. But um, in my business, my greens business was doing well enough by 1990, where I felt I could really support myself just doing that. So for the next decade or so, I was, I was very quiet in terms of growing cannabis. But given that experience, I became a, an advocate for legality. I just felt that all this fear that had been built up around this plant and its use was, was truly absurd. You know, I knew so many people, Republican, Democrat, what, what have you. It was the only thing that brought America together. You know, every, it seems like the very people who were telling you not to smoke on the so side were smoking, you know. So it, it, it yes. really became painfully apparent <laughs> that this prohibition was really distorted, perverted, and making people into criminals who, who yes. were not at all in that category of character, you know? So that became a kind of personal outlet for me was to, was to talk with deep conviction about legalizing marijuana and hemp, by the way. That became equally important to my way of thinking in terms of how we could create a better future on uh, not only lessening prohibition or stopping prohibition of marijuana, but actually doing constructive materialistic things with the hemp crop, replacing plastics and synthetics, repackaging yeah. with plant fibers. All that became something that I could almost palpably taste or feel in terms of a of, of future that, that, might be a solution to many of the problems that, that were, were haunting us 20 plus years ago, which is the enormous waste of plastic and synthetics that, that, that are, um, you know, not thought about. We're, we're certainly having those conversations now. Anyway, so we've come a long way, but, but have we? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know. I think we have. Um, obviously, there's a lot more to go. And so when you say that you really started to work for these things, would you say you were an advocate? I mean, were you just having conversations like amongst your community or were you actually doing it politically as well and getting involved in some of those conversations of legalization? Just curious. That's a great question. You know, it was, it, it was, it was rather insular. I mean, I was talking to chefs. I was talking to people I socialized with. I was talking informally to veterans who I had a, quite a relationship with at that time in terms of having supplied them. I, I felt that having the conversation with people was a kind of on-the-ground politics. So formally, no, yeah. I, I was not part of politically, like I wasn't a part of norm 
but I was part of normalizing it in terms of having a normal conversation about marijuana Absolutely. And, the, and, and opening that up for people to think about. And perhaps even, you know, with others having that open-ended conversation, seeding a new way of thinking about the plant beyond fear. Yeah. And I think it's those conversations, really, that actually, in the end, moves the conversation in the uh, the halls of government. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the normalization of the conversation that makes people feel confident that they can actually um, move forward the policy, too. And so... That's great. But you did get really involved. So I want to kind of like speed ahead a little bit because we have a lot to cover. You eventually, you know, you disconnected from the plant for a while for the reasons that you talked about. And then you came into the legal market in the late 2010s, right? Yeah, 2019. And so what was the decision to come into the legal market at that time? And what was your first role? Well, at, at that time, it was getting harder and harder to make a living is an organic farmer selling mescaloon that had been my go-to crop for at least 20 of the 36 years um, as a grower that uh, had become my specialty crop. And we were selling up to 300 pounds a day until we weren't. There was just a whole lot more competition, both locally, regionally, and uh, from California with with a very subdued homogenized version of mescaloon salad mix, right. it became, you know, something that was generic and so low price that for me to charge what I felt was necessary to make a living and maybe a little bit more became increasingly difficult. Yeah. And I think it was 2018 that Massachusetts legalized both hemp and recreational marijuana. And as you said earlier, you know, we started having that conversation when Vermont legalized about the eventuality of Massachusetts at least starting with their own medical program because there was talk of that. And I believe we medicalized in 2014 or 15. And there was no way into that as a farmer. I did look at it briefly, but it was um, considered from a security point of view, an indoor crop period. And given it was being grown medically, the perception was that it had to be grown indoors in order for it to be environmentally clean and um, not going to produce, um, you know, any mold spores, mildew spores, what have you for anybody who might, might have been compromised immunologically or what have you. So that was the perception. And And certainly it was very, very expensive to get into one of those indoor groves. So, yeah, when we legalized recreationally, I carefully perused the 16 pages of rules and regulations. And again, it it was designed for the folks that had been in the medical business in Massachusetts. But there was a caveat in one of the paragraphs that, that mentioned outside of an indoor grow, if there was space for a greenhouse that that could be utilized within the square footage of the grow. Hmm. And when I saw outside, outdoor, a greenhouse, a light began to brightly shine. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps a farmer could put up a greenhouse and do this. There's you know. a place for me. <laughs> yes. And, and that became a bit of um, an odyssey. You know, there was before there was a Cannabis Control Commission, there was a joint task 
force of sorts appointed by the governor made up of a few senators and representatives from Massachusetts to to begin to think about how to regulate the recreational market. And I met with uh, Senator Jalen and Mark Kusick, the, the main chair people, and talked about the virtues of growing outdoors and perhaps having them think about that this could be done securely and it could be tested at the end of the season for certain microbes and bacteria, that it could be done outdoors. And they just hadn't thought about it. You know, it had been presented to them by lobbyists and those that were in the indoor business, that that was the way to do it. So eventually, after going back and forth for several months to Boston, I was told, why don't you just take this back to your town in Sheffield? And I'd been a selectman. I sort of knew how town hall worked. And I began to meet with select board members and planning board members uh, because at the time, marijuana was strictly zoned in Massachusetts for industrial areas or uh, commercial areas on the highway. Again, vis-a-vis it being an indoor grow. And the the plant was actually deemed non-agricultural. So that became a kind of strange, delicate point. Part of that was due to the fact that it's still federally illegal. Still here in Vermont, it's not classified as an agricultural product. That's one of the the fights, you know, that people are still trying to have changed here. It's a sticking sticking point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think back then, too, like people were still so afraid of this plant being seen, you know, yeah. like it had to be clean for the medical patient, you know, and sterile in some way, which it will never be because it is a plant, you know, and it needed to be hidden away, you know. Right. It needed to be hidden away. Well, I'll tell you, an eight foot fence is is another way to hide it away outside. But yeah, there there were all those issues. But eventually my town realized that, that it was an opportunity for them to uh, take advantage of the fact that the crop was legal, that in fact, it is a plant that, that grows in the earth. And it was another way for them to collect uh, some tax revenue. Right. And this took some convincing, but ultimately we created a bylaw or Sheffield created a bylaw law that allowed for marijuana to be both grown outdoors and outside of an industrial zone, i.e. on a farm. The catch being is that the agricultural land had to be taken out of Chapter 61A or that low tax ag bracket and put into a real estate tax bracket. And that's how I was able to do that on my farm is we pulled out the the five designated fenced in acres or to be fenced in acres out of the ag tax bracket and put it into real estate. Right. So that's how that that worked. So you were able to be the first one to to grow outdoors uh, on a farm in the state of Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was really wow. an extraordinary moment, um, moments that led up to it, because I, I thought other farmers in Massachusetts would be equally passionate about this opportunity. But due to some of what you mentioned, Bridget, the the fear of it being somehow 
scene or part of the landscape in, in towns was a really a new idea. Everybody from town to town pretty much had in their mind that this was strictly something to be done indoors, out of sight, out of mind. But I think once Sheffield took it on, other farmers, other towns began to, to look at it differently, like, wait a second, they think it can be done. And as long as the state-sanctioned security parameters are upheld, you know, not only a fence, uh, but a screened-in fence between seven and eight feet tall, not scalable per se, with the prerequisite cameras, which need to be everywhere. Right. That security could be provided outdoors. Other issues such as smell, possible criminal activity, you know, for every every town and seems to have always the same concerns ultimately by people that it's going to stink up the neighborhood and, and their kids might get into it. So there's a, there's legitimacy to those concerns, but um, mm-hmm. ultimately as it's become more normalized, I think people see it see the crop as a healthier alternative possibly to growing indoors or or that it can be done in such a way that it's not an interference to the neighborhood. Exactly. All right, so on that first farm, that first cultivation project that you did, did you do that under your own license or did you contract to work for somebody else? How did that work? Well, you know, when I finally did get the green lights from everybody and I looked at what it was going to cost me just to apply for a provisional license and then also realized what the fencing, the security, the infrastructure that was needed to do this was going to cost. I, I realized that it had been kind of bullshitting. Like I didn't have the money to do this. And so I, you know, I, I quickly went into this gear of I need to raise money. And where's that going to come from? And unfortunately, I'd gotten some press about what I'd been up to, what my desires were. I think there was an article in the Boston Globe about um, Ted Dobson, farmer, advocating <laughs> or wanting to be uh, that grower outdoors. You know, it just was going to take so much money, so much money for me to get that license that the press that I got did me well. So people began to contact me and they were tantalized. And, and one of the, the organizations or entities that contacted me at that time was Theory Wellness. Uh, they'd had a, a medical dispensary in Great Barrington for the last several years. They were one of the first in South County to get a recreational license. And I'd met with a few investors that, that were, were willing to bet on me, but I realized that I, I didn't have the, the know-how to understand all the compliance that was necessary, all the rules and regulations that, that were absolutely required, the metrics, keeping track of the, the crop from plant to seed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There were a lot of things that, that just weren't part of my wheelhouse or I knew was going to take time for it to be part of my wheelhouse. So when Theory Wellness came my way, I realized that they had the experience and knew how to navigate what I considered a very complex business environment. And um, they were also right on the verge of expanding their indoor grow, I think from 15 to 20,000 square feet to to 50,000 square feet. 
And I, I think they sensed that there was an opportunity to do this less expensively outdoors. Yeah, and do it outside. Yeah. And that, yeah. you know, what really appealed to me was they also had a store. So, you know, it, it was a very, very good fit at that time. So it was their cultivation license that they actually came to Sheffield with, which made this possible. It, it was my loud mouth that set up the circumstances <laughs> and the situation, and, and it was their wherewithal. Yes, yeah. Well, that's the way it happens sometimes in the beginning, for sure. I mean, a lot of the work that's... I mean, the cannabis industry is capital intensive. It's so many regulations that I think make... You know, at least 20% of what you do on a daily basis, like not a value-added activity. <laughs> and it's just a lot of uh, red tape to wind through. Yeah, I mean, that, that the red tape was something at the time I knew was extraordinary. And I'm, I must say, uh, having an entity that knew how to navigate all that red tape was very, very fortunate, fortuitous for me, because now... As of this season, Theory Wellness has vacated, left the, the property as per our contract, and uh, I'm navigating myself this regulatory environment, and it's, uh, it's intense. Yeah. So let's focus on that. So you've stopped working with them, and you've taken over the property, which is great, and you are starting, you have a provisional license under a new brand called Aero Cultivate. Yes. Um, yeah. And so what is your plan there. I'm very curious to understand you know, how you are thinking about entering the market at this time in Massachusetts. It's a fairly mature market. You've been reading a lot about just what's happening down there and about price compression and all of those things. So you're diving in now on your own. You're going to be doing it outdoors. Like, What's, what's your business plan there and what are you thinking and how are you going to differentiate yourself? Well, let's just say that, that right now I'm quite clear as to what the path is ahead and that's raising money which I'm in the in the middle of doing at this point in order to activate my provisional license um, over the four years that I grew with theory um, the state became more clear and perhaps stricter about the security environment uh, outdoors so it turns out that I need a $100,000 upgrade, both for the security and the wiring of the cameras. Um, wow. The electric, uh, the electric needs upgrading. My former partners used generators to generate much of the electricity, which was um, loud and messy. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, just the, uh, the necessary upgrades to activate my provisional license cost quite a bit of money. So having said that, that's that's um, my current creative conundrum. But I'm going to get through this and I'm going to find my way into this mature marketplace. And it sure isn't four years ago. During the four years, there were a number of big vertically integrated and singular cultivators of marijuana that, that are for the most part are indoors. And um, their product is is ninety five percent of what people consume in Massachusetts is indoor grown. Wow, I didn't realize it was that high. So there aren't that many outdoor growers. There right are now. there. There's a handful. There's between fifteen and twenty, but they're they're micro growers. They're smaller growers, and they're spread out throughout the state. 
I can't say we are a coalition. We're, we're working on that at this point in time. But as far as what, what is generally available throughout the year in Massachusetts at this point is indoor. So to answer your question about how am I going to differentiate myself four years later in a somewhat saturated market, yeah, there are, there's a lot of uh, legal cannabis being grown in the state right now that has pushed prices down. Uh, that's been a bit discouraging in terms of uh, my my entry timing into this. But mm-hmm. where I'm inspired and motivated is I, I feel like I did 30, 40 years ago when I initially got into organic farming and I knew it was going to be a challenge to build a marketplace. And I'm not singularly building this organic farm marketplace, but for myself, I am. And I think that's that's really what I, I want to communicate to people is that farm grown, organically grown is a sincere and authentic option to something that's mass produced and artificially grown. I would venture to say that most of the indoor factories are hydroponic. They're certainly grown under lights and they are energy vampires. And, uh, you know, also the amount of waste, affluent plastic that comes out of an indoor grow is, is kind of stunning. But for me, you know, the big differentiation is my my religion, my link to the soil is so intense and knowing that this plant throughout the season is is building such a, a beautiful root system. You know, after five months, um, a cannabis plant that is allowed to really flourish has got a root system between four and eight feet down and around and out. I mean, it's as, it's as extensive as a, you know, a several year old tree. As it is above, it is below, right? Kind of the same way with trees. <laughs> As it is above, it is below, yeah. And it, it, it's it's such an important part of the equation in terms of the health and vitality of the plant. And I want to transmit that message to the marketplace that high quality can be grown in soil with the gloriousness of the sun rather than yes. artificial lights. Because I'm stuck right now navigating the finances and getting this thing off the ground that has sort of been my uh, my my current obsession right yes fundraising is a full-time job it's a full-time job but i'm I'm beginning to get out and talk to dispensary owners in the in south county between sheffield and great barrington there's there's at least seven stores and um It's a little discouraging in the sense that that most of these folks that that own uh, retail stores are also growing their own indoors or getting their plants from indoor facilities, and the consumers really are used to that. They're they're not they're not being encouraged, and why would they? There's so little outdoor to be purchased, generally speaking, in any one dispensary. So the few dispensaries that I have stopped and had um, surface conversations with just to kind of get a feel what's going on is because it's not readily available, most folks aren't asking any questions about how their cannabis has grown. And of course, it's grown indoors. So I think it's going to be a bit of an uphill battle, but I'm working my way into this conversation 
and and getting the word out as constructively as I possibly can without ruffling too many feathers in the industry. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I just can't get over the difference hearing you talk about how much of it is indoor down there. We have kind of like the exact opposite up here in Vermont. You know, we've prioritized small farms uh, and outdoor growing. Um, and so I would say that like, I don't know, 75 to 85 percent of what's been in the market so far here in Vermont is outdoor. Well, you know, and that's remarkable. And we'll leave it to Vermont, the Green Mountain State, to emphasize farming. I mean, every state is fortunately different. Uh, New York, too, started with its hemp growers. And I thought that was absolutely remarkable because, you know, generally speaking, I can't speak for the West Coast, but, um, you know, generally speaking, when uh, marijuana becomes recreationally legal. Big players are usually poised and may or may not, but in many cases, they've, they've started in a medical realm, uh, which is indoor growing for the most part. So, you know, the indoor grow for most of the legal United States and, and a hybrid greenhouse growing on vast acreage out West, such as California and Oregon, it's, it's become pretty much the other norm. So anytime a state starts with their farming, particularly here in New England and in the Northeast, that's a tremendous leg up for us because somewhere down the legal line, the indoor growers will be coming unless, as I'm seeing in Massachusetts, it becomes unprofitable to continue to grow that way. They're, they're enormously expensive enterprises to keep afloat. And as prices go down, they're going to have to begin to look at, well, what's efficient? And let's face it, farming, growing marijuana in the soil, on a farm, outdoors, is super energy efficient. You know, and if we can prove out quality, I think we've got the workings of perhaps a new perception, generally speaking, in the marketplace. I mean, for instance, your home state, Vermont, you all have been growing great weed outdoors for decades. That's not new. <laughs> yes. Yes. We have a long history of a, a, a wonderful legacy market here. But I think if there's anybody who can like level up the game on outdoor down in Massachusetts, it's probably you, Ted. <laughs> so um, you got that going for you. Well, you know, I, I tell myself that, that I could be that, that guy and I, 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 I need to have the heart and enthusiasm come back to me while doing this fundraising to remember that, you know, I kind of feel like I served this plant. You know, it, it truly is a medicine. It's, it's a remarkable, remarkable entity. And the idea of it being locked up anyway, whether it's indoors or outdoors, is already a formidable challenge, you know, it's a it's a double-edged sword legality. You know, with legality comes commodification, and with commodification comes a kind of arrogance and ignorance. You know, marijuana in a glossy package, it's somehow this commodification of marijuana somehow has to be re-articulated as to what is special about this plant and what makes this plant special in your own life. How does it delight you and how does it make you feel? 
And it's not just an inebriant. It's, it's not just perhaps an, another drug to get you through the day. And maybe it is. I mean, maybe it is that for a number of people. But I, I suppose my values are, are geared towards emphasizing the incredible qualities, nuances, and healthful aspects of, of marijuana in the same light and vein of growing beautiful food. Yep. Yep. Awesome. You know, it's, it, it really, it, it really does strike me in that, that same kind of way. And, and if I can get that message out there, the way I once participated in uh, propagating that message through local and organic food, then, then I will, you know, one way or another, I feel like that's a worthy challenge in this mature market. Excellent. I think we got to end there. <laughs> that sounds like a manifesto. <laughs> so we'll be pulling for you and your fundraising with Aero Cultivate. And so this will be your first, assuming that all that works through, this will be, this will be your first, you'd get your provisional license and you'd be having your first grow this season. So we're hoping for that. Yeah, that's that is what I'm aiming for. That's what Arrow is aiming for is getting seed. No pun intended. No pun intended, right? Yeah, right on. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to have I'd like to have seed in the ground by June first. And you know, I'm used to working this time of year. And so the edginess of getting into this legal marketplace often is a little bit overwhelming, but I'm keeping my eye on the future. And the future is farming this plant again and, and making myself whole by doing it. Because, you know, a farmer not farming is a, um, an unusual creature to be around. <laughs> well, you know what I got to do here, because I've been asking everybody at the end of the episodes. So I got to ask you too, is what are you doing to take care of yourself right now during this stressful time uh, that's kind of keeping you away from, from farming? Yeah, that's such a poignant, deep question. My business, my greens business required delivering, and I did my time on the road and um, delighted to report that uh, as of the last several years, I have willfully not been behind the wheel, but on a bicycle. And that brings me a lot of silence. One has to remind themselves that life is a fluid affair. And what goes on in one's thoughts is a reflection of reality, but not the reality itself. And for me, it's just feeling, just being out on the earth, and flowing through it on a bicycle has kept me somewhat grounded, emotionally sane. And yeah, I mean, I think whenever one takes on a new project or is in an immense transition, you're vulnerable to the zygust of the world. And right now we are in an incredible zygust. And I feel that, yeah, I feel that being in betwixt myself. So it is really important to figure out what habits don't serve you. I've often resorted to to alcohol to calm me down in the evening, and I realize that that no longer is an ally in it, any way or form. I can't, I can't really afford to to be hungover or have foggy thinking. So, 
a little, even a little is too much at this point. So I feel I, I feel it's necessary to be present in one's body and one's one's brain, one's one's physicality, psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so anything that doesn't serve me, I become acutely aware of. But you know, old habits are a struggle. And um, I think you really have to have an overriding goal in mind that guides you through difficult changes, rearranging habits, and and finding a healthier sense of self is um, ongoing and evolving. Ask me in a year, a year from now, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'll catch up with you on a bike sometimes because biking is actually my go-to therapy. I've been on the bike now out on the road for about six years and there's no place I'd rather be and I love doing it in the Berkshires. So, <laughs> And it's springtime and so next time I'm down there or going down there, I'm going to bring my bike and we can ride in silence together. I'd love that, Bridget. Yeah, that's um, something I look forward to is someone to ride with. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Ted, for being here today and for sharing your story. Thanks, Bridget. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking with you. And uh, we're going to be paying attention to what you're doing, so we're looking forward to hearing more. All right. Awesome. Great. Take care. Bye-bye. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at hi5et.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.